Hi, welcome to the latest episode of Mistress Mia's Dungeon. I'm your hostess, Mistress Mia, Mistress Mia's Bedtime Stories. And this is Escape from Dominatrix Island. And we begin. A woman in a silver leather jacket stood at the cliff's edge with a walkie-talkie and was giving hand signals to a woman dressed in black leather who stood with a hand on one of her several control levers of the machinery. Her jacket was unzipped to reveal what looked like a sweaty, black sports bra, while a cigarette dangled out of her corner of her mouth. The stone floor below the cable was wet, and two women in black leather and their rubber work boots were opening up a large net. I was thrilled to see the bright yellow seat from the jet ski part of the nose of the craft, along with the handlebars, and a tangle of wiring. Along with the wreckage were some scuba tanks, swim fins, and some other equipment. While I was envisioned the women walking the narrow shoreline looking for any debris, it seems that their search and recovery had a more intense salvage operation. To my surprise, a woman in a silver-gray suit climbed over the edge of the cliff. There was a narrow, rusty ladder bolted into the rocks that went down into the side. She looked tired, probably from the dive, from what I assumed was a long climb to the top. Her glass face mask was propped up on her forehead, and she had three black stripes on one sleeve. Soon afterwards, another woman came up to the cliff ladder, the other one wearing a black wetsuit with the uh, three silver stripes on one sleeve. Hmm. All of a sudden, the woman in the silver jacket, who was standing watch at the edge, gave a shout and a hand signal to the lady of the controls. She threw them several levers, the engine speed reduced to the low throb, and as the cable slowly came up over the pulleys at the edge, a large net on a hook came into view. The woman in the silver jacket was then on the walkie-talkie, possibly with someone at the bottom of the cliff, but I didn't pay much attention. I was looking at the contents of the net of the cable hoist slowly as it brought it up into the room. Perhaps more of a cave that had just been blasted out of the rocks long ago. The net contained the remaining parts of the jet ski. The machinery screeched as the dripping net came to a halt. Then after the clanking of a few more levers, the net was slowly lowered onto the floor. Anastasia gave some orders and the women began to open the net. One of her binder notebooks was down there by the hoist controls, and she opened it up to some pages that contained my drawings. The diesel engine coughed loudly, as if it were to shut down, and the cave was uncomfortably quiet. Then there was the click of high heels on the stone behind me, and I caught a whiff of cigarette smoke. The tall blonde, who was all dressed in silver, stepped up behind me. She may have come down from the stairs, heels on metal drowned out by the roar of the engine, or perhaps she had been standing in the shadows all along. She walked to the outer landing to talk with the woman in the silver leather jacket, standing at the edge of the two-way radio. The divers had been standing off to one side, smoking cigarettes, but they walked over to join the ladies who were outside. 
Anastasia was still ordering the other women around, getting the remains of the jet ski, positioned in certain ways. There's no prop. Is water jet propulsion system? She said aloud as she looked over my drawings. No navigation or communication equipment. Expensive toy, as you say. She looked at me with a cold glare. The one who appeared to be in charge. Her long braid, blonde hair, silver leather jumpsuit, with tall matching boots gleamed in the sunlight, stood in the open doorway and appeared to have little interest in the salvage operation. Tossing her cigarette out by the floor, she slowly walked into the chamber. Anastasia spoke with her intently, pointing at my drawings and the wreckage that had been recovered. Then they both turned to look at me. I was too uncomfortable to say anything, and was relieved when they turned back to look at each other. Anastasia seemed to be arguing, but the tall blonde walked away from her, back to the outdoor landing. Then she briefly turned her face out of the wind to light a smoke. There will be a conference. Determine you. She paused for a while, as if she were thinking of the right word. Your station? You will be taken back to quarters as well. Anastasia addressed the two women in black leather, and they had brought me down the stairs, and she gave them some lengthy instructions. I wasn't sure if that was good or bad. However, before long, I was escorted back up the endless metal stairway, taken to a washroom where I could clean up, and then they returned to my dungeon cell. Although I was relieved that I wasn't going to be questioned or paddled, not knowing what could have happened next to me, it was causing me a lot of stress. Anastasia had said that they would decide my station, but her English wasn't perfect, and given the way she had said it, I think that station was a rough translation from her native language. I lay down on the bed for a while, hoping to doze off and not have to think about my situation. But my mind was racing. I'd never pursued serious relationships with women. They were all just amusing diversions. Strippers, escorts, or as Anastasia had so cruelly called them, whores. Having seen the remains of the jet ski, knowing I had set out into the open ocean on that thing was nearly... Unbelievable. Uh, it was nearly an empty tank of gas, and I had even considered that I might actually be dead. I mean, the isolated island of foreign-speaking women who wanted to torment me might be a version of hell that I deserved. Perhaps I was finally able to doze off, but suddenly I heard several pairs of high heels approaching. I snapped back to reality and felt panic come over me. However, it was just a pair of women in black leather jackets and shorts who left me a bowl of gruel and some small loaf of bread. Then they walked away without taunting or laughing. I was disappointed there was none of the warm broth. It would have been soothing. The hours wore on as usual. I was aware that some were standing guard somewhere near the end of the hallway. I would sometimes hear them talking softly or catch whiffs of their cigarette smoke. It occurred to me to try and talk with them, and I just thought that in some sort of sense, what my fate might be, it, it couldn't be any worse than this. I realized it would be no use at this point, though. Anastasia was the only woman on the island that spoke English, though I suspected the tall blonde who appeared to be in charge understood it to some extent. Also, the women, who dressed all in black, appeared to view me as nothing more than something for their amusement. I was unlikely to get any sympathy from them. I laid down once again. 
and was later awoken by the sound of high heels on the stone floor. It sounded like a large group. When they came into view, I saw it was the same two women in black that had brought my food and two others. The other ladies wore silver leather jackets and black thigh-high boots. One of them was Eula, the whip expert, although she seemed unarmed. The second officer, or elite, as I guess they were called, also had three stripes on her sleeve. Her shoulder-length blonde hair, curly hair, it looked familiar, and I realized she was one of the divers I had seen this morning. One of the women in black held up a pair of handcuffs and motioned for me to approach the bars. I hesitated. Where could they possibly be leading me off to this time? Eula spoke what sounded like some sort of words to me. The diver lady smiled, made an okay sign with her fingers, followed by enthusiastic thumbs up. I allowed myself to be cuffed, and then they led me away. Although we went through plenty of corridors, we mainly went upstairs. Some of them dark and narrow, and others were more inviting. Although I'd started to get used to the cold, being kept naked, the upper levels were noticeably warm and more pleasant. We stopped when we reached a stone archway in an upper corridor. Women in black leather and knee-high boots stood guard on either side, and beyond them I could see a stairway curving up to one side and out of sight. The diver women said something to the women in black leather that were part of the one group that I saw earlier. They removed my handcuffs and joined the other pair that stood guard. Eula then motioned for me to follow her up to the stairway and the diver came up behind me. Wherever we were going, it seems that the women who dressed all in black were not allowed. At the top of the stairs in a short hallway stood the tall woman with her long blonde braids, dressed as usual in her silver leather jumpsuit, the elaborate crest and stripes on one sleeve, and her silver metallic thigh-high boots. In contrast to her left was a short brunette, she was dressed in silver thigh-high boots, silver leather shorts, and a silver leather jacket that also had the crest on the sleeve, but fewer stripes than the blonde. A third woman stood to the right of the blonde. It was Anastasia. After I was brought before the three women, Eula and the diver took a few steps back. There was an uncomfortable moment of silence. Mr. Van, my name is Stanmira. I was surprised at her perfect English, which had only had a faint trace of a foreign accent. I serve as a chancellor to Lorenda, who is in the matriarch of this installation. I had been right thinking that she was in charge. Through my own misfortune, you have arrived here at the Citadel. We are a private island. We're far from your home. Our contact from the outside world is limited and infrequent. Stanmira said. We may see that you are returned to your homeland, but that will likely not happen any time soon. Until then, Lorenda is offering for you to be our guest. You will be provided with food and clothing and a comfortable room. Stanmira pointed towards an open doorway. The room beyond was certainly a step up from my dungeon cell, step closer to a dorm room. What looked like a bowl of gruel was on a small table, a pair of gray thong underwear hang from the back of a chair, and some leather sandals were on the floor next to the chair. In exchange for the privilege, you will be required to perform menial tasks such as janitorial work. 
You will have some limited freedom within the citadel, but I caution you not to run off in some attempt to escape. You have seen our narrow shore at the base of our cliffs. The tide comes in here quickly, and you were very lucky that night. I watched and I heard you approaching on your watercraft so that we could dispatch some parties to bring you in safely. Do you have any questions? I thought for a moment. You speak perfect English, I told her. Why didn't you interrogate? Why didn't you interview me? Anastasia volunteered to interrogate you. I was shocked that Lorenda, the tall blonde, responded in English, though with a very heavy European accent. Anastasia has been trying to get promoted. <laughs> Judging from the tone of Lorenda's voice and the small frown worn by Anastasia, I thought it would be some time before she earned another stripe. This one-time offer, Mr. Van, make decision. Other choice is to be taken back to normal quarters and be locked up for a long time. So, I had accepted her offer. While that was probably the smart thing to do, my situation left a lot to be desired. It would turn out that the only clothing I was given was thong underwear with the sandals, and the only food served was the gruel. I made the mistake once of asking Lorenda for some of the broth, and she had me firmly paddled by Stanmira. Having been their guest for a while now, with no more mention of me being released from the island, I had been keeping my eyes open for any way I might contact someone back home. There had to be a satellite phone or shortwave radio here for communication. But I hadn't found either one. Even if I had, I wasn't sure I'd be able to figure out how to use them. In theory, I could try to escape to the lighthouse tonight, but the escape from my employer's yacht had been spontaneous. Leaving without wearing proper clothes or shoes, it didn't end well. I wasn't sure if there was a cell phone service on this island, but I cursed myself for not running back to my cabin, grabbing my cell phone and sealing it in a plastic bag before riding off on the jet ski. Escaping from the island would require a bit more planning. I needed to get kitted up, as Mr. McConnell had said. He was probably some world-class adventurer, the kind of man that would sail the ocean alone on a small boat. If he were in my position, what would he do? There was only about one finger's worth of cognac left in the bottle. If I drank the rest of it tonight, the empty bottle would be removed from my room by someone tomorrow while I was working. However, if I left some in the bottle, perhaps it would still be here for me tomorrow evening. It would be a good idea to bring some water on my escape to the lighthouse and the liquor bottle could be used at a improvised canteen. Not that it would be much water, but it would be better than bringing none at all. I had smoked the cigar about halfway down, although I would have liked to have finished it. I carefully snuffed the large glowing ember in the ashtray. Hopefully those items would not be taken away either. The lighter could be used to start a small driftwood fire to stay warm. The metal ashtray had a dull finish, but a somehow polished up might be used as a reflector to signal a passing boat or plane. Draped in the blanket, I came up with a few ideas for clothing. 
regarding some proper footwear for the escape, I had an idea for that as well. The bowl of cold gruel looked unappetizing as usual, but I felt weak and knew I needed the nourishment. As I ate, I thought that for my escape I should take the spoon. The sturdy metal might be used as a tool, perhaps sharpening the end of the handle into a spear tip for fishing. Yes, I was getting all geared up. Or kitted up, as Mr. McGonnell would always say. I would leave tomorrow night. As I lay down in bed, I felt sleep washing heavily over me. The cognac had something to do with that, but I was now certain that the evening gruel was drugged. The next morning I was given the task of sweeping an outdoor walkway. It was maybe halfway up the side of the citadel, and seemed if it might wrap around the entire structure. While the morning was cool and my almost naked body, I was thrilled that I would have a chance to be fully in view of my surroundings and possibly figure out a path for my escape later tonight. I came across several metal grates, either in the pavement or the walls, and after making sure that no guards were around, a heavy wooden door nearby was thrown open, and two ladies dressed in black leather jackets and knee-high boots came out. They headed my way, one of them twirling a long wooden rod. I held up my broom, thinking I was to fight them off if necessary, but they just laughed. One of them held up a small bowl that contained a thick oil of some kind. She pointed up at the sun, rising in the sky, dipped several fingers in the oil, and then rubbed it gently on her shapely thigh. Then she made hand motions showing that I was to rub it all over my body. It was then that I noticed she had three silver stripes on one sleeve and that she was the medic from the infirmary. The other woman showed me what I feared to be a rod for thrashing me was nothing more than a rag on a stick. She made motions as if dipping in the rag into one end of the oil and then using the long stick to rub it onto her back. I've been so afraid they were only here just to give me some type of sunblock oil. As they walked away, I heard one of them say, Teacher's pet, and they laughed. Looking down over the parapet, every now and then, in one area I saw a pen with some chickens on it, and another some goats that might be kept for milking or even meat. The citadel was more self-sufficient than I had thought but they would still need some supplies delivered a few times a year. Hundreds of cartons of cigarettes, for example. Every now and then I would catch glimpses of women leaning out the windows above me, usually smoking cigarettes, but they paid no attention to me. At one point I was sweeping below a small balcony and heard a woman walk out there, high heels clicking on the stones. I looked up and recognized Anastasia. She still only had two black stripes on her silver jacket. I had rarely seen her since I'd become Lorenda's guest. It seemed she'd been walking outdoors to have a smoke, but once she'd spotted me, she gave me a snort of disgust, tossed down her cigarette, and I heard her stomp out with a thigh-high boot as she walked away. Later, rounding a corner, I came to a wide open area the parapet here was taller than larger notches at the top. There were some giant, recessed, rusty iron sockets in the paving stones at those locations. And I imagined that cannons had been mounted here long ago. While that was interesting to some extent, 
I was still more intrigued by the view. This cannon area looked as if it could have been defended from the island on three sides. The two far sides only had a small portion of flat land before the steep cliffs dropped off. But in the center portion, the ground made what looked like a long, gentle slope downwards towards the sea, and beyond that, I saw the chain of islands that McGonnell had described. The nearest island was a narrow wall of rock that towered over us from the waves. It was long and made a slight curve. A few smaller islands were beyond it. The lighthouse wasn't visible from here, but I knew it was out there. It was on the last island. How far was it from the nearest island? I couldn't judge the distance. Half a mile, maybe? I looked at the water in between and watched the waves. They didn't flow as smoothly between the two masses of the land, and every now and then I thought I could see peaks of rock momentarily pop out above the surface of the water. The submerged land bridge that connected the island chain, according to Mr. McGonnell, <clears throat> it would be exposed later tonight by a rare and extra low tide. I was looking directly over the parapet, trying to figure out where I'd been with the citadel, but that might exit down below for the quick escape. Teacher's pet, I heard a woman's voice call out. I'd been caught loafing on the job, but when I turned around, I saw my situation might be even worse. It was Serena and Elena. Both women were brandishing riding crops. The one with two stripes in the sleeves of her black jacket, I assume that was Serena, but she was barking orders at me in some language and kept pointing her crop towards a pair of large iron doors in the wall of the citadel. I had no idea what she wanted, but assumed she was up to no good. Shaking my head now, I held up my broom to a defensive position. Her response was to laugh, and she called out to Elena, who started to circle around behind me, swishing her crop through the air. Although I didn't understand what they said, the tone of their voice was mocking. They circled in tighter around me, swinging their riding crops at my bare legs. I thrust the bottom out of Serena, but just before the moment of contact, there was a loud snap and a burst of pain at the back of one of my knees. Stumbling, I realized I'd been struck by Elena's riding crop. In that brief moment, Serena dropped her own crop, grabbed hold of my broom handle in one smooth motion, and pulled me further off balance. I grabbed for the edge of the parapet wall with one hand and managed to break my fall, but the bottom handle was twisted from the grip of my other hand as I slowly went down on my knees. Alana stood over me with her riding crop poised to strike, while Serena quickly pulled out a set of handcuffs and snapped them on my wrists. She saw the bowl of sunblock and the rag on the stick nearby. I'd been carrying those around with me while working, periodically reapplying the oil. She made some comment about to Elena, then scolded me in her language, finishing with teacher's pet. Elena was walking over to the iron doors as Serena pulled me up to my feet and applied some numbing grip on my forearm so I'd follow her. Although the doors were massive and Elena was a small young lady, they were rigged with an old system of counterbalance weights and cables, so she slid them open with minimal effort. The larger chamber inside might have been a bunker for ammunitions or when this place or whatever it had been, it was a fortress. 
but I could see they had been converted into a torture chamber. A version of the wooden framework I had been harnessed to during my interrogation was in the center of the room, and the two women forced me over to it, securing my cuff wrist to an overhead beam. Looking out through the open doors at the chain of islands, knowing these two women would be having their way with me in this torture chamber with a view. There was a slight bit of comfort in knowing I would be escaping to those islands later tonight. My thong was roughly removed from my body, although I expected them to start whipping me right away. Serena began poking at my penis with the tip of her riding crop. In the cool air, my cock and balls were shrunken and she laughed at them. I was afraid she was going to start whipping my balls with her crop and squirmed as much as I could to move away from her prodding. She said something to Elena, who had circled around behind me, and two quick lashes of her riding crop snapped on my bare ass. They spent an uncomfortable amount of time browsing through the various implements hanging on the walls, coming back over to me with some shackles to secure my ankles. Once again, Serena began poking up my cock, and Elena resumed whipping my ass. They laughed and were clearly enjoying themselves. Then Serena held up her hand to signal Lena to stop. The two women talked briefly about something and started laughing. They walked out of the chamber. Maybe they were going to take a smoke break. But that would not be their plan. Serena picked up my broom while Lena picked up the dish off Sandblock and the rag stick. And as they came walking back to the chamber, Serena said something in a threatening tone, then straddled the broom handle. The tip poking up between her legs, she made a thrusting motion with her hips. They stood in front of me, Serena giving instructions as Elena dipped the rag on the stick into the oil and began to swab it over the end of the broom handle. Even though they probably didn't understand me, I begged them not to put the broom handle up my ass, because I assumed that's what they had planned. The two women slowly circled around behind me, high-heeled boots clicking on the bristles of the broom, scraping on the stone floor as if it were being dragged along. I begged and pleaded some more, and felt two hands on my ass, spreading my butt cheeks apart. Then someone appeared at the wide, open doorway. A lady wearing a silver leather jacket. She yelled something at Serena and Elena, and I heard the broom handle drop to the floor. It was Anastasia. I never thought I'd be so happy to see her. She walked slowly into the room, and for a moment I was afraid that she would be content to stand back and let the others continue. However, she began to yell at them angrily in their heavy foreign accent. I caught Lorenda's name, but couldn't understand anything else. One of the women replied, speaking casually, and perhaps saying that they were just playing around all in good fun. Anastasia had them standing, facing the wall. She pulled a pair of handcuffs from the pocket of her jacket and secured one of the ladies' wrists behind her back. Evidently, she only carried one pair of cuffs because she walked over to me with a small key in one hand. I started to thank her as she released me. Don't speak, she said firmly, as if it were a warning. Then walked over to cuff the other lady who had no stripes on her jacket sleeves and I suppose was not allowed to carry handcuffs. Anastasia scolded them some more. Again, mentioning Lorenda, she pulled them away from the wall and started pushing them towards the open doorway, pausing for a moment. She looked back over her shoulder. 
Back to work, she said with a snarl. A while later, I was sweeping and looking over at the edge of the parapet and spotted the cable hoist where the remains of the jet ski had been brought up. The ledge at the top of the cable was far below me, and the ladder from the divers had climbed up the face of this cliff, looking precarious as it dropped far below to a stubby dock made of stone or concrete. Perhaps that dock and hoist were used to bring in supplies, maybe delivered by boat? However, it would be a dangerous job if the waves periodically smashed and washed over the little dock. It might require waiting for the right tide and weather conditions. To me, it made sense that the Citadel would have a better dock for access by the boat. I had only worked my way around maybe a quarter of the fortress and thought there might be a protected harbor on another side. I heard the sound of high-heeled boots approaching and quickly got back to work. To my surprise, it was Stan Mira, and as far as I knew, she never made rounds of the Citadel. Come with me. Lorena wants you to do something. We have to move quickly. She held me deep inside the Citadel and paused outside a large wooden door. Once we go inside, you have to be silent and watch from behind the partition. If you should become aroused, she said uncomfortably. Supplies have been provided. I wasn't sure what she meant by that. As we stepped inside the door, we were at the end of a long balcony that overlooked a large chamber. Lorenda was seated on a tall chair in the center of the balcony, so she could easily be looking over the railing. A folding partition had been set up at the end of the balcony, so that those entering could not be seen from below. Stenmira positioned me in front of a tinted window in the partition. I suspected it was mirrored on the other side and then went to stand next to Lorenda's chair. Some type of ceremony was in progress in the chamber below. In the center of the floor was a heavy wooden framework, similar to the ones I had seen in other torture chambers. It had been refigured so that the person could be bent over a beam at waist height and strapped firmly into position there. I was surprised to see two sharply female bottoms were exposed and tilted upwards. Black leather shorts and black panties pulled down to their knees, shackles fastened securely around their ankles to their knee-high boots. On either side of the framework, ladies were lined up in rows, elite women in silver jackets in front, and women dressed all in black in the back. None were slouching or smoking, all were standing at attention. Eula stood in front of the two women who were bent over at the bottom. She'd been giving some sort of long speech since the moment I had stepped into the balcony. While I couldn't understand a word that she was saying, I recognized the name Serena and Elena. That was when I noticed that each of the two wooden uprights of the framework had a black leather jacket hanging on it. The jacket on the left had two silver stripes on the sleeve while the other one had none. It must have been Serena and Elena who had been strapped into place with their shorts down and their bare bottoms exposed. One of the ladies in the silver jacket stepped out from the ranks. She was holding two long slender canes handed one to Eula, and each woman took their position on either side of the frame. Canes poised above the vulnerable bottoms of Serena and Elena. They looked up to Lorenda, who gave a hand signal. The two women began to administer the caning. 
There were no dramatic pauses or swishing their canes through the air like might be done during an interrogation. Just one stroke after another. They only paused every now and then to look at Lorenda, perhaps for the signal to stop the punishment. The woman on the right, the woman with the stripes in her jacket, she began to cry instantly, while the woman on the left remained silent. I was then aware that I was getting an erection, and it was starting to be painfully confined inside my thong. I had noticed a small table by my viewing window when I was brought into the balcony, but hadn't paid much attention to it. Now I saw in the shadows of the partition on the table was a shallow bowl with some type of white lotion in it, and next to it was several small folded cloths, the supplies that Stenmira had mentioned in case I had gotten aroused. I stole a quick glance at Lorenda and Stanmira, who were watching the caning below. Since it seemed I was permitted, I lowered my thong to release my straining erection, and the creamy lotion felt cool and soothing on my penis and fingers. The consistency was just right for lubrication. Both women below now had bright red stripes across their bottoms, the one on the right still crying, but now the one on the left was giving high-pitched grunts when every stroke of the cane had landed. To see those women punished... Although I felt kind of justified, I was surprised that I found it so intensely arousing. Just to watch. I, I don't know why. The, but then I realized I hadn't masturbated since I had been on the island. I had always been too tired or otherwise. It just hadn't occurred to me, which seemed strange. Perhaps it was the length of time since my last orgasm. Or maybe the dramatic scene below, but I knew... I was only moments from ejaculating. I scooped up one of the small towels just in time to catch one burst of calm after another, my knees buckling with the intensity. I was surprised I was able to keep my heavy breathing quiet and not groan out loud with the initial burst. Looking over at Lorenda and she and Stamira, they paid no attention to me, and Lorenda gave a hand signal and the caning stopped. Picking up a second towel, I slowly milked the last drops of my cum from the softening erection. My orgasm had one of those intensities that you're sure your balls have been completely emptied. The other woman in the silver had stepped back into the ranks and Eula was speaking once again. I heard her mention the name Serena several times. She then pulled something from a pocket of her jacket and I heard a muted click and saw the flash of a knife blade appear. For a moment, I thought she was going to use the switchblade on the woman being punished. However, she turned to the jacket hanging on the upright of the wooden frame, the jacket with two stripes on the sleeve, and she began to cut off one of the stripes. Eula walked around the framework, so the two ladies strapped over it could see that she held and removed the stripe. Eula threw the stripe down on the floor and stomped it twice with her thigh-high boots. I jumped when all the women standing in right stomped their feet twice in response. After putting your knife away, Eula was handed two items. She stood front and center and held them so that everyone could see. The two large tapered plugs that looked as if they were made of some exotic polished wood. She said a few words and then looked to Lorenda, who was there taking a long pause. Sorenda! 
Lorenz's voice beamed in the chamber as she thrust out one hand pointing towards the woman who had just been demoted in rank. Serena must have known what was going to happen and started pleading, her words deteriorating to what sounded like cries for mercy. Yule had placed the second plug inside an elite guard and Silver Jacket stepped forward with a small pot that looked as if it might be some type of lubricant that I had just used. What looked like a long artist's paintbrush was standing in the pot. Eula pulled out the brush and made an elaborate show of lubricating the large wooden plug. Dipping the brush into the pot once again, she then moved over to Serena's upturned bottom, all the red stripes from the brutal caning, and Eula began to poke at the crack of Serena's ass. Then swirling the brush to lubricate her asshole, Serena screamed, knowing what was coming next. My penis was getting hard again. But as I reached my hand towards the dish of lubricant, I saw that Stan Mira was at my side. You aren't permitted to see any more, she whispered in my ear. Then took one of my elbows and escorted me off the balcony. When we were back outside of the hallway, Stan Mira told me, if it had been my choice, you wouldn't have been allowed to see any of that. It wasn't just for your benefit. You know there are other men here. Serena and Elena have been a bother to them as well. Serena was supposed to be a mentor to Elena, and we are all sad that it didn't work out as planned. I had a few questions for her, like what happens to Elena since she had no stripes? Might be a recruit or something, but Stan Mira said none of my concern. We were back at the place where I'd left my broom. Before she turned to walk away, I dared to ask her if I might have a cigarette. There was a long and awkward pause, then Stan Mira gave a brief sigh, unzipped a pocket of her jacket, and removed a pack of smokes. After she had snapped the lid shut on her lighter, she walked away, high heels of her silver boots clicking into the distance. Standing there in the warm sunlight, leaning on my broom and enjoying my cigarette, still feeling the afterglow of that intense orgasm, I felt better than I had in a long time. When I had smoked that cigarette down and snuffed it out on the stone parapet, though, I came back to reality. Although I enjoyed some special privileges here at the Citadel, I knew my body was getting weaker. Eventually, I would probably end up mindless and just become a drone working below in the gardens. The escape plan was still on for tonight. In the early evening, when I returned to my room, I was delighted to see that the nearly empty bottle of cognac was still on the table. The remains of my cigar still sat in the metal ashtray next to the lighter. As I enjoyed the cigar, I looked at the bowl of gruel on the table. Although I was hungry, I wouldn't be eating it. Tonight, I needed to stay awake. I would leave shortly after dark. While I waited, I improvised some clothing. Taking a sheet from the bed, I ripped a hole in the center so I could slip it over my head and let it drape over my body like a poncho. Tearing a few stripes from a second sheet, I was able to secure the poncho around my waist like a belt. I was nervous making these preparations. The heavy wooden door to my room was always kept open. But it was rare when any of the guards came by this time of the evening. It was tempting to swig down the last of the cognac, but I wanted to keep my mind as sharp as possible, so I poured it down the sink and then filled the bottle with water. 
flushing the gruel down the toilet, I left an empty bowl on the table near the door. I wasn't sure if the guards made bed checks after dark, but if they did, I wanted it to appear as if I had already eaten for the night. There was a small window in my room, too high up to look outside, and there was a crank mechanism on the wall for opening and closing it. Lying in bed, I stared out the window for what seemed like eternity until darkness came. I agonizingly waited, just a little while longer before making my escape. Like a prison break in a movie, before I left, I arranged my blanket and pillows so that if a guard casually glanced into my room, it might look like I was in bed. The hallway outside my room was dark, as well as the curved stairway that led down to the lower levels. I descended the stairs as quietly as possible, listening but also keeping my sense of smell alert for the whiff of cigarette smoke. I had no idea if the guards were posted at the bottom of the stairs or patrolled the citadel, and its grounds were still after dark. It was a real weakness in my escape plan, but I hadn't had any time to check. Only a few dim lights were on the corridors and stairwells. Some areas were completely dark. Eventually, I made it to the boot room. Here I took off my sandals, useless for rocky terrain. I knew that the largest pair of boots were on the bottom of the rack and just inside the door. They were a snug fit, and their flat heels were on the noisy side, but on the stone floor, I just had to walk softly. Not far from the boot room was an alcove where large overcoats hung on a rack. The ladies would sometimes wear these over their leathers when they went outside in the rain. Using the flame of the lighter as a small torch, I selected the largest coat that I could find. The coat was a bulky fit over my poncho, but I got it to work out. The bottle of water and the other items I had with me stowed easily in the larger pockets. It wasn't long before I descended a wide stairway and found myself outside the citadel under a bright partial moon. I had exited on the side that faced the chain of islands. Although I was aware they had a night watch of some kind, I made my way across the grounds, which gradually sloped down towards the sea. The tight boots pinched my toes and chafed at my heels. However, every time I stumbled on a rock, I was glad I had them with me. When I reached the edge of the island, I could clearly see a narrow strip of rocky land. Making a slight curve, it is extended across the next island. McConnell had been correct about the dead, low tide and the land bridge. I spent what seemed a long time finding what looked like the safest place to make my descent. When I was halfway down, I slipped, sliding on my butt the rest of the way and making a rough landing. Getting to my feet, looking back up at the cliff, I thought it might be possible to climb back up. I was past the point of no return, though. The trek to the first island took longer than expected. It was slow going on the rough terrain, and that island was probably further away than it appeared. Not exactly an island, it was more of a narrow slab of rock rising several stories above the water. I made my way around the side, which was illuminated best by the moon and the stars, and even though the other side looked as if it might have a slightly wider rim of rocky shoreline, when I reached the opposite end of that island, I could see the lighthouse flashing in the distance. It seemed a long way away, but at the end of the curved chain of other rocky little islands, 
I trudged on through the night. The further I went, the worse the conditions got. The land bridge increasingly became washed out, and it seems as if the tide, it waded through and up the surf and past my knees. It was probably the tide coming back up, but the boots filled with salt water and were painful, but I pushed on. My blisters were raw on my feet. My clothes were soaked. I looked back one time and saw a few dim lights from the citadel far in the distance. And although I was exhausted, I knew I had to keep moving. After walking all night when the sun was just below the horizon, I was wading through water and was nearly waist high at the base of some cliffs and waves sometimes rolling up to my chest. From my vantage point, I couldn't see the lighthouse. I might yet be several islands away, and I'd have to find a ledge to haul myself out on until the tide went away. But that's when I spotted something in the distance. At first, it looked like a large slab of rock and then fallen from the cliffs into the water, but then I realized that the edges were too straight to be natural. It was a small dock made of stone jutting out into the water. It must be the access point for the lighthouse. When at last I painfully climbed onto the dock, I saw the eroded remains of a stairway that had been cut into the cliff long ago. It switched back and all the way to the top. Knowing it would be a stressful climb, I reclined against the base of the stairs to rest. I pulled the bottle of water from my coat pocket and took a long drink. It tasted faintly of the cognac, and that was pleasing. When I saw the sunrise, I knew my escape would soon be noticed. Would I hear a siren blasting away in the distance? The citadel wasn't visible from the dock, so if they did set off an alarm, I wasn't sure if I would hear it or not. Although my feet hurt badly and my body ached from the long walk, I knew I would have to climb the stairs back to the top of the cliff if for some reason this wasn't the island with the lighthouse. I would at least be able to get my bearings from up high and rest up on the next low tide, although I didn't know when that would be. The stairs were narrow and dangerous. In certain areas, there were remains of rusty iron handrail anchored to the cliffs, but it didn't look safe enough to trust. For a good portion of the climb, I crawled on my hands and knees, not just to keep low and prevent the strong winds from blowing me off the narrow steps, but also to avoid putting weight on my sore feet. The lighthouse at the top wasn't picturesque. It was almost something you'd see like a beacon mounted on a short metal tower and a flat area at the top of the cliffs. At the base of the lighthouse was a bank of solar panels and a small shed painted in white and orange. I had assumed the house the batteries and the controls, all of that was enclosed within a rusty fence topped with a coil of razor wire. There would be no way to access and sabotage the light. There was no emergency distress transponder, and even though McGonnell said such a thing was a long shot, he'd sounded, I don't know, optimistic. I'd been so hopeful, but at that moment I just wanted to cry. <laughs> That was when I noticed something mounted on the fence next to the gate. A small metal box on the cover of a silhouette of a telephone handset, painted in a faded orange. Oh yeah, transponder, emergency phone. Either one would do. 
I painfully got to my feet and limped over to the fence. There was no phone inside the box, only a large red button. There were some instructions on the plaque inside the cover written in several languages, though none of them were English. The paragraph that looked like it might be written in Spanish started with the word emergencia. Yes, this had to be the emergency distress call, so I pressed the large red button. It made a loud click and stayed down, then gave a faint red glow over a few seconds. The lighthouse beacon above, still flashing as usual. I suppose there was nothing to do now but wait. Sitting down on a large metal chest there, it was next to the gate. I began the painful process of trying to pull one of my boots off. This was when I noticed a large red cross of faded and peeling paint on the side of the crest, probably first aid or emergency supplies. I'd been too preoccupied with the emergency transponder to notice. The boots could wait, and I tried to open the rusty metal latches, but it was no use. Then I remembered the spoon I had brought and removed it from the pocket of my coat and used it to pry open the latches. A while later, I relaxed in the sun and let it warm my body as I leaned against what looked like a stone foundation of the original lighthouse. The overcoat and my improvised poncho were spread out on nearby rocks to dry. It had taken considerable effort to remove the tight boots from my feet, and they were blistered as badly as I had feared. However, there had been first aid supplies in the chest by the gate, and I had rubbed my feet as well as with the few other cuts of my body and what smelled like an antiseptic and wrapped them in some clean white gauze. I tore open the wrapper of another emergency bar and took a bite. There was a large supply of them in the chest, and although they were a bit stale, I swear I could feel my strength coming back by the minute. Then I took a large swig of water from a jug, there were several of these in the chest as well. The water smelled faintly of chlorine, as if to keep it sanitized for long-term storage. Every now and then I would glance at the open box where the emergency transporter button was. It was still blinking red. There was a small array of antennas on the metal shed, the base of the lighthouse, and I suppose one of them was beaming out the distress call. By nightfall, the coat and blanket had dried. I found a place along the old foundation to huddle out of the wind and try to get some sleep. The lighthouse beacon flashed reliably above, and the transponder button continued blinking red. I imagined the day's event at the Citadel after my escape was noticed. There would be the clatter of high-heeled boots throughout the corridors and chambers as they searched for me. McGonnell told me that one of the possible escape routes, he would have noticed the break in the guard's normal routine. The commotion, he would have to assume, I'd made a break for it, and he would be thrilled. Once the citadel was searched top to bottom, the ladies would no doubt search the grounds and patrol the rocky shore of the island, looking for me to be alive and hiding somewhere, or perhaps my dead body on the shore, either washed up by drowning, foolishly trying to swim away, or bloody mangled from falling when trying to climb down the cliffs. I doubted they would bother to search the other islands, which was nothing but inhospitable. They wouldn't even notice or even conceive that a man could make it happen to the lighthouse. Late at night, I woke and crawled a short distance away to relieve myself. Then as I crawled back to hunker down against the remains of the stone wall, I had a sinking feeling. The women at the Citadel had been expecting some honored guests. 
Wealthy men who came to their island for a short time to be imprisoned and tortured by the leather-clad women in their spike-high-heeled boots. Would they arrive by boat or perhaps by a large helicopter? My fear was that the pilot of their boat or chopper would receive the transponder signal. It might be reported to the women at the Citadel. Lying awake in panic, I tried to rationalize that the men coming to the island, the guests, this was their private business. They would have no interest in any sort of rescue operation drawing unnecessary attention to them. They would simply instruct their pilots to ignore the signal. Besides, I'd press the button early in the morning. Some other party must have intercepted the signal and be putting together a rescue crew. They might possibly show up tomorrow. Several days passed and my body was getting badly sunburned, and I tried to stay in what little shade I could find. I was starting to get low on water, and I had improvised a rain catchment system using the overcoat to funnel water from brief morning rains into the empty water jugs. The water tasted nasty, and I suspected it was dried salt water from when I was smashed by the waves on my trek here. It would take a long, strong rain to rinse that out. I'd also taken a rationing to the energy bars. My feet were healing pretty well, and I felt amazingly strong. Perhaps later in the day, I would go down the stairs to the base of a cliff and look for some fish or other creatures that got trapped, maybe behind some rocks when the tide went out. Although the red button, for what I thought was an emergency distress signal, was still flashing. I wasn't sure if it was doing anything else, but I had no way of knowing how far the nearest mainland or inhabited island was that might send someone out to investigate. There was plenty of time to figure out a plan to sabotage the lighthouse. I had tried smashing the padlock on the gate with a large rock and had no luck. However, the bolts on the gate hinges were rusty and could be broken. After hours of pounding with rock until my hands were raw, I knew that eventually I could get in. I could climb the light tower with a ladder and cover the beacon with the overcoat. Late in the day, I heard the low blast of an air horn from a boat, and it sounded close by. A rescue party had arrived at last. The air horn sounded a few more times, and when I made it to the top of the stairs, I saw a wide, stubby boat slowly backing in towards the dock. It looked like a tugboat or a small fishing boat, but without any nets, and I assumed it was the lighthouse tender coming in to check the emergency transponder. Someone was standing in the shadows under the overhang of the wheelhouse roof wearing a long, dark coat, and it looked as though they were scanning the top of the cliffs with a pair of binoculars. I saw them give a hand signal and someone came out to the side of the door of the wheelhouse to take the binoculars. Although I couldn't see their face clearly, I recognized their gleaming silver clothing and long blonde hair looking up at me through the binoculars was Lorenda. The End This has been written by Christopher D.B., from literarotica.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, make all your fantasies become realities. <laughs> <laughs>